In the 1930s, the Works Progress Administration made history by engaging Americans in public works projects, many of which centered around rehabbing historic places and parks. Today, Historicorps is taking up the mantle of that legacy, working to engage Americans in the hands-on work of preservation. Townie Anderson, the executive director of Historicorps, is organizing this effort and growing the organization. Roll up your sleeves and get ready to get hands-on on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're joined by Townie Anderson. Townie has over 40 years of experience with historic preservation. He's restored historic properties first as craftsman, then contractor, later developer, and owner. He was an independent scholar, a cum laude graduate of Middle Burley College, and attended the Preservation Leadership Training Program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He served as Vermont's first appointed state historic preservation officer, as director of the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers, and as chair of the Vermont Historic Preservation Advisory Council. He's a senior fellow with the American Leadership Forum and co-wrote groundbreaking statewide legislation encouraging reinvestment in Vermont's historic downtowns. He was a founding board member of Main Street Steamboat Springs. Two of his certified historic rehab projects received National Trust Preservation Honor Awards, and he was appointed executive director of Historicorps in August 2012, where he's bringing together everything he loves about historic preservation, buildings, people, beautiful places, and education. Townie, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. So you have a, a long and illustrious career in preservation, and we could talk about all those things, and we will, but I think people find it interesting to hear how someone who has had this long career and so many exciting opportunities and experiences, how'd you get into all of this? Were you Where'd you grow up, and were, were you did you sort of just come out uh, of the womb ready to go with preservation, or what was the path here? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, I uh, actually started uh, working as a, as a gopher, what they uh, used to call us, entry level, uh, working with a local contractor when I was about 15. And then later, the uh, summers, I was Fortunate enough to learn uh, carpentry from um, a master carpenter who still uh, coped uh, moldings uh, and um, used hand tools for all the, the uh, uh, finish work. And um, let's see, I well, I had started college and then withdrawn, and then. Um, this interest in uh, carpentry uh, led to I wanted to go to architecture school. So I uh, reapplied and uh, was accepted at Middlebury College, which is where I grew up, <laughs> and um, I started mid-year. And uh, they had a uh, January um, semester, which was an intense course, and this course combined uh, physics and uh, art history, and uh, I met a fellow named Glenn Andres. I just took a, uh, I joked that it was a left turn to uh, 
historic preservation, and uh, he was really my mentor, and um, we uh, we are friends to this day, and actually served on the uh, advisory council, uh, Vermont advisory council on historic preservation together for years. That's how it all began, and I never looked back, and uh, never went to architecture school. And so I guess depending on how you look at it, I mean, you were talking about you being a gopher, which is sort of your first job in the field, but you've had a lot of different experiences in the field. What led you to be appointed as the, the first appointed Vermont State Historic Preservation Officer? When did when did that all come about? What's the story there? That's It's just interesting. You don't hear, you don't get to talk to a lot of first shippos. So what's that story all about? Yeah, well, it's uh, that's interesting. I um, well, I never, I didn't graduate from Middlebury College. I uh, my senior year led right into business, and I worked with other folks doing uh, actually dismantling historic buildings and reassembling them on another site. These are buildings that were going to be torn down, and usually were in those days you get them for a dollar. Uh, that's not true anymore. And that led to then wanting to do historic preservation, uh, historic rehabs on site. So I uh, started my own uh, contracting firm called House Joiner. I always seemed to be looking at uh, the bigger picture every step of the way. And so I got involved somewhat politically, got involved in the in policy of uh, historic preservation, was uh, nominated to uh, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, and then um, was uh, like chair. And by that time, I, um, the house joiner had been uh, sold to another contracting firm, so then I was developing historic uh, building rehabilitations for them. From there, I went to Preservation Investments, which was a redevelopment firm, with one of the principals of the uh, contracting firm that <laughs> that, were, that I had uh, sold house joiner to, and then uh, so then it was looking at redevelopment of historic properties, and we redeveloped a couple of properties in uh, Middlebury, which uh, are going to this day. One was uh, the Marble Works, which is a marble manufactory. The other was uh, the largest uh, commercial block in downtown Middlebury, which we owned and maintained for 30 years. So as the chair of the uh, advisory council, I was aware that uh, funding had been cut by 25%. The staff had been cut by 25%. The uh, morale was uh, very bad. And uh, I went to the uh, head of the Agency for Housing and Community Development to discuss with him hiring a consultant to come in and and look at the um, Division for Historic Preservation and um, make some recommendations as to how it could be reconfigured or um, how its uh, reputation could be um, rebuilt, uh, if you will. The head of the agency looked at me and said, uh, well, why should I hire a consultant? Uh, Why don't I just hire you? So Governor Dean appointed me the SHPO, and uh, so that uh, led to three years with the Vermont Division for Historic Preservation and uh, basically uh, trying to rebuild our image and um, reverse the whole uh, equation, if you will, or ratio that uh, put forth our ability to assist uh, citizens, uh, put a big uh, – we had a grant program and um, we put a lot of effort into that. We put a lot of effort into the state historic sites tried to become more of a partner in the, um, we had a role in Act 250, uh, and I think that we were able to finally uh, um, help the um, environmental commissions understand that the role of the advisory council, um, that its determination of historic buildings was 
really no different than uh, uh, biologists uh, in the Department of Natural Resources uh, determining deer yards. Uh, it was a determination, and it was uh, in accordance with uh, uh, specific criteria. It's interesting, uh, having uh, come out to uh, Colorado, um, that uh, because uh, archaeology back east in, in, in Vermont, um, archaeology was kind of the poor cousin, and uh, in the divisions or departments of historic preservation, and were uh, roundly criticized by developers because. They were so expensive. Uh, if an area was determined uh, that it, it may yield uh, significant I- information, it could cost the developer, you know, a million dollars or more. Back in the in the 90s, and um, so what we did was uh, tried to work more closely with them and uh, help them, uh, you know, understand the, uh, you know, how the determinations worked and so forth. It kind of led the perception, if you will, of the uh, of historic preservation. Uh, I got out to Colorado, and uh, archaeology is, is really the, kind of the lead in uh, historic preservation out here, is uh, well-respected and uh, well-understood because of how fertile the uh, archaeology um, is out here, uh, how often it uh, intersects with development, whether it's oil and gas or pipelines or highways and and uh what have you so uh it was very interesting for me yeah yeah i mean it's it's clear that you're uh familiar with taking on big projects and and so that's one we want to talk about which is historicor um historicor for people who don't know what it is um how did it get started what is it in a nutshell for someone who you know the 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 uh the two-minute version here what is it for somebody who doesn't know what it is Historicor engages volunteers on historic building rehabilitations on public lands. It was actually founded by uh, two folks in the uh, Forest Service and Colorado Preservation Inc., which is a statewide preservation organization like Preservation Maryland. Uh, it's corollary in uh, Colorado. And uh, the Forest Service needed a partner to um, help with the thousands of uh, historic um, resources it had on uh, uh, on its land. So they turned to Colorado Preservation Inc. Historic Historic Corps was founded, and was a program of Colorado Preservation Inc. Until it um, actually outgrew Colorado Preservation Inc. We were by uh, 2011 were um, in multiple states. And Colorado Preservation Inc., of course, is uh, is a statewide. So the board decided that uh, it was wise to to spin us off as an independent 5013, which we've been since uh, January 1st of 2013. And so, what types of projects, people? You know, obviously, public lands, but give us a sample of the kind of projects that you guys work on. The Forest Service continues to be our largest partner client. Its golden era was uh, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps era, the work, uh, Works Progress Administration. So we do uh, a lot of buildings from that era. We do lookout towers. We do um, ranger stations, patrol cabins. We do a lot of uh, uh, one-story log cabins. As we've moved east, we've become uh, more involved with uh, a little higher style. But, uh, you know, rarely uh, do we go beyond uh, what would be termed uh, vernacular architecture, even even if it uh, is associated with a um, uh, specific architectural period. 
So how does the project actually work? So do you have a staff that completes all of it? Or what's the what's that component? What's the workforce component look like? We have, um, oh gosh, this year we had eight trucks and trailers all on the road at the same time. Uh, we usually go out about uh, the uh, end of May. We have some earlier projects, but by June 10th, um, all eight trucks and trailers are out on the road, and they're out there with a project supervisor who is a skilled preservationist, skilled, experienced preservationist, and then a crew leader. And the crew leader is usually uh, someone just graduated from or in a uh, historic preservation uh, graduate program. And we advertise that position as a um, preservationist with a passion for cooking or uh, cooks with a passion for historic preservation because they do double as the camp chef. And food is a big part of what we do. We're asking a lot of these volunteers. And uh, so, you know, really good meals uh, shared is a, a big part of the experience and a big part of the fun. So, and we're usually in places uh, where uh, there's no cell service, um, uh, no internet, and uh, so it's uh, what people call 24-7 immersion. They're camping. They bring a, a sleeping bag and a tent. Some folks come with RVs if uh, if uh, the site is accessible to them. We've now working more in urban areas. Uh, Bostwick would be uh, considered one of those. And we realize that our platform of uh, volunteers in this operating model uh, worked great for um, a 21st century uh, conservation service course. Otherwise, now everybody calls it 21 CSC, so some of us have even forgotten what it stands for. But nonetheless, it's a demographic of about uh, 18 to 25 and 30 uh, in the case of uh, post-9-11 vets. And... Um, Working with those folks um, is uh, just as easy and just as gratifying as working with uh, volunteers. Uh, so we've expanded to include students and in, uh, conservation corps and uh, veterans. And so how are the projects, I mean, from a nonprofit standpoint or people listening who are curious, so obviously you work on public lands on lots of different interesting projects, sort of vernacular architecture. You engage volunteers, but there is a cost associated with this. Who's paying for it? How does that normally end up working out? We are still about uh, 97% plus uh, fee-for-service. So our uh, sponsoring partners, the uh, owners of the property or uh, stewards of the property, they are raising the funds to engage us. What we bring to the table is we just work as, as lean and mean as we can, if you will. We have a, a very small uh, office staff. Uh, we're here to support the the um, field staff. That's our job, is to make it as stress-free and uh, comfortable as possible, given the fact that they can be on the road for four months and uh, may not get home during that whole time, sleeping on the ground most of the time. Uh, recognizing that, it's uh, our emphasis to, is to make their job as easy as we possibly can. But the fee-for-service, we are going to be undertaking a fundraising effort this fall to uh, replace trucks and, and trailers and tools and uh, equipment, including kitchen equipment. It's 
time for those to be replaced and, and uh, it's an expensive proposition. Um, so what we're hoping to attain in the next three to five years is a ratio of 70% fee-for-service and 30% fundraising grant sponsorships uh, and so forth. We've had some uh, projects where we work with a local uh, friends of the particular resource. Uh, in Wyoming, uh, we did Simpson Lake, which is in the wilderness area. Fitzgerald Wilderness. We worked with a local group there that was raising funds, and we we were the repository for the funds. So they became matching funds for the fort, the uh, Shoshone uh, National Forest. So uh, we're going to do that again in another forest or another wilderness area in uh, Wyoming, and we want we want to do more of that. So the uh, what we offer is just uh, not only uh, tr- uh, doing the projects for less less money, but really being able to provide uh, far more uh, and diverse benefits, community outreach, good publicity for the sponsor, and particularly uh, relations with their local communities, (laughs) that the value to them is, uh, particularly with the federal agencies, is they are getting less and less funding. Uh, So they're losing staff. The uh, contracting process uh, requires a lot of resources and uh, competitive bids. It can be expensive to do it. And we offer a uh, a lower cost alternative um, through cooperator agreements. So if people want to get engaged, I mean, this is fantastic. If people want to get engaged and want to volunteer, what's the simplest way of doing that? Just going on our website and uh, contacting us. Uh, Go on the website and peruse at historicor.org. And the Historic Corp uh, Corps is uh, Corps, C-O-R-P-S. always have to remember the S. We list the projects, uh, locations, the schedule, and uh, so we basically put everything out there and uh, people pick based on uh, when they're available, when they can get away. And, and the difference uh, for us uh, or with us is that, um, you know, once a project is scheduled, it's not like we can uh, postpone it because of weather or things aren't ready yet. The volunteers, you, you can't call them up and say, geez, can you, can you come a week later? <laughs> They're depending on us uh, that when, uh, when they sign up for a project that uh, we're going to be there to greet them on Sunday night and uh, be, be there to uh, make uh, their experience as uh, high quality and as much fun as possible for the next five days. So it's literally that simple. Just, you know, go on our website. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and uh, Instagram and so forth. But um, yeah, just uh, look for the projects where you want to go and we post them as uh, fast as uh, uh, we get the agreements together. And we're now, we're, we're doing about 40 projects per season. So, And so what's the future for Historic Core Hold? I mean, I know you've expanded to the East Coast. You're working on a project in Maryland right now. Uh, you know, uh, will there be more people in the field? Is, is the goal to grow it, to keep it the same size? What's the What's the future? The, uh, the future is to continue to offer this. What's our ideal size? I mean, we, we, we are a nonprofit, and we have to be very cognizant of that. So we'll get to a point where, um, you know, we are uh, operating and we're viable um, financially. Uh, we've uh, pretty well turned the corner on that. And can we uh, absorb more, do more projects? Uh, Well, the future is to have um, offices uh, and um, project managers located where we are, uh, you know, getting a a good deal of work and can can support that office. And that's how we can grow. 
we can't just uh, keep growing out of the Denver office. So the uh, California, for example, we do a lot of work in California, and they want us to open an office there. So that, that's, that's how we're going to grow. Well, this has been a, a really interesting interview. Interesting to hear about this fantastic work and glad to hear that it's expanding. Um, before we go, the most difficult question we ask of most preservationists, your favorite place or historic site? <laughs> oh, boy. I love mining ruins, industrial ruins. So uh, there are places like Santiago Mill, which is at about 11,300, 400 feet, uh, up on um, Argentine Pass, uh, up above Georgetown. Those are the places that I, I find fascinating. And there's actually becoming more and more interest in arresting deterioration, if you will, stabilizing ruins and trying to uh, stabilize them to a state that they won't deteriorate as, as rapidly and people can read the landscape. So that's different than what I would have said if I were still in Vermont. But historic resources, they tell stories. And uh, out here, uh, well, just about anywhere, it's those resources that people understand that, yeah, there is a history here. Uh, it's not just more than, uh, you know, just a, uh, a static, uh, passive landscape. Uh, things happened here. And even back in Vermont, I'll never forget this, is Interstate 91. If you look carefully as you come up through the state of Vermont, you'll see stone walls that come to the interstate on both sides. And you realize that this interstate literally cut right through what was once a, uh, uh, a contiguous farmstead. You can see the same thing in urban uh, 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 landscapes where uh, neighborhoods got cut off by, uh, you know, highways or freeways through the, through the cities. Um, that kind of stuff is uh, just fascinating to me. Well, I, 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 we haven't gotten a cultural landscape before, and I, I appreciate that. Um, a fantastic answer from someone who has maybe not seen it all, but, but seen quite a bit of it. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. So great to hear about the success um, of Historicor, and we wish you all continued success and uh, look forward to seeing you more in Maryland and, and elsewhere around the country in the near future. Thanks again, Townie. Well, thank you, and we truly look forward to uh, any opportunity, and that's who we are. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.